This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. A new run of a, uh, a, a survey out, and I always love where Toronto gets ranked in certain departments, but Toronto is now ranked uh, 23rd among major North American cities. And, or rather, world cities, as a matter of fact. London is first, and Paris is second, and New York is third. That's fine. That's okay. We can handle that. But Toronto's ranked the 23rd best city in the world. But I want to read you and just give you a lens this morning on a little bit of a lighter, like there's not no massive story blowing our doors off here. But I want to give you a little bit of a read as to why we see our we see with a lens of our city uh, very differently than an outsider would and i'm looking for like ah there's good and bad with everything right there's give and take there's give and take in relationships there's good and take in prof- give and take in professions here's what's written about toronto on the uh, worldsbestcities.com website and this is from a group this is from uh, a consulting group uh, called resonance consulting This is not a company George Costanza uh, started in Seinfeld or told some girl that he started. Here's Toronto. I'll read this to you as it is. This is the subheadline for Toronto, 23rd on on the world city chart. Economic growth fueled by immigration and global investment has Canada's largest city poised for big things. Is that news to you? All the buzz you're hearing about North America's second largest financial center doesn't even come close to doing justice to what's going on in Toronto right now. The city is the welcoming front door to a country on the hunt for new skilled immigrants. Already, half of Toronto's population was born outside of Canada. And the city will blow past 7 million by the time you read this. On its way to trailing only Mexico City and New York in North American populations by the 2070s. 2070s? Today, it's 238 cranes, more than quadruple, second place Seattle's count of 51. All that construction is optimizing and streamlining an emergent global destination city. From the reopening of its century-old Massey Hall to the massive new Renzo Piano-designed Ontario Court of Justice that combines six older buildings under one roof. Much-needed downtown green space has been added with Love Park, featuring a heart-shaped pond and built on the site of a former Gardner Expressway off-ramp with access to the city's lakefront. Coming up, The St. Lawrence Center for the Arts is getting a $400 million facelift and will be Canada's first carbon-neutral theater upon reopening in 2028. That's it. But I wanted to stop myself several times. But I wanted you to know what they wrote, and then I can tell you what's missing here. There's nothing about cost of living. There's nothing about housing. And there's two notations that are really concerning. The city will blow past $7 million by the time you read this. Right, I know. Yeah, exactly. Do we have enough jobs? Do we have enough places for, for people to live? That's That might be a question you'd ask. And you don't think, when I see 7 million in Toronto, it gives me the shivers a little bit. Like we're never, maybe we were never intended to be that big because we don't spread out as far geographically as some of these other massive cities. Maybe that. The other thing that is nothing to brag about, I'll go back to the middle part of the paragraph. It's 238 cranes, Toronto, more than quadruple second place Seattle's count of 51. When you've got cranes in the sky, when you've got things up there and out there, that tends to mean that you're inefficient at finishing projects. And that's some of it. That's absolutely some of it, if that indeed ends up being the case. 
So Toronto, that's we're 23rd on a brand new list of the world's best cities. That's a firm called Resonance Consulting. And it's just weird to see us tagged with a potential population of over 7 million. Nowhere in that praise are issues of housing or cost or safety. I'd love to hear from you on text and you tell me what you think. Like, do we, that's an outsider viewing us going, oh my God, that's a great place to live. That's fantastic. That's phenomenal. But I do think we have to ask our own internal questions sometimes. We can, of course, get into our own heads and our own brains about what Toronto is and isn't. That can happen constantly. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, joins us live right now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for this. Hey, good morning as always. Thanks so for having me. you've done some digging here. Uh, you and Isaac Callen have done some digging and you've been working with the Ontario government. And I use that term with loosely to ask questions about the premier using his personal cell phone. And you've got more information this morning. Yeah, Global News has been trying to use the freedom of information laws to kind of take a peek into who the premier has been calling or receiving calls from. And you can imagine during this whole Greenbelt affair, that has become a very important question who has the premier's ear, who can reach him directly on a cell phone, whose call will he actually answer? Um, the government has been fighting us on this for, for months now. Initially, the government had claimed, look, there is no evidence, and there's, it's entirely speculative to claim that the premier uses his personal cell phone for government business. But then we appealed uh, this decision to the Information and Privacy Commissioner, who would kind of adjudicate this, uh, this type of a dispute, And now the government has filed another submission. Their lawyers now say, yeah, you know what? The premier does use his personal cell phone. They say he can use his personal cell phone for a wide variety of things, including calling friends or family members, calling constituents as an MPP for in Etobicoke. But they say he can also use his personal cell phone for government-related business, and that includes um, items related to his duties as a minister, as the premier, as the head of cabinet, as the head of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. They even gave specific examples. They said, you know, he may be able to use his cell phone, uh, his personal cell phone, um, you know, to determine the agenda of cabinet, which is the most kind of inner sanctum of the inner workings of government. So that is government business. And that's what we're looking to kind of get a window into. But the government is now claiming they they can't release the documents. Sorry. But and this is more about it sounds like Colin not protecting Ford, but protecting the privacy of people who who he would call in that context or text in that context. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So, So what they're saying is that everyone who calls the premier could be calling on a constituency matter, right. meaning they might have a, a, whatever, an issue in their, uh, in their riding, an issue in their backyard, whatever the case is. So they're saying that those are not covered under the freedom of information laws when it's a constituency matter. But in doing so, they're making the argument that everyone who calls the premier is a constituent of the premier. And we know, right, I remember during the pandemic, the premier said he got a call from the CEO of Walmart. Most recently, while they were negotiating the deal with Stellantis, uh, the Ford government, uh, the, the premier had been calling Christia Freeland and spoke with her late into the night. And she, you know, admitted the same. Mm. So you can't say that the CEO of Walmart or Christia Freeland is a constituent of the premier. Similarly, at, at, earlier this year, the premier had given out his cell phone number at the Empire Club, full of business leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just a lot of people who have potentially a lot of combined wealth. 
you can't necessarily say that they're constituents or they're calling the premier on constituency matters. So it's, it's, it's mixing business and personal items and constituency matters. And you and me, the taxpayer, have zero view into who the premier is calling. Only the second week of uh, Queen's Park sitting uh, in the legislature. And, um, you know, Mart Stiles has impressed a lot of people. Uh, do you expect her to dig right in on this front today about these phone records? She's been on this and she was on it early. So it was interesting. Last week, she actually asked about this. And, uh, you know, Paul Calandra, the government house leader, had said, look, you know, as MPPs, we routinely get calls from the premier. He used a specific example of like going and shopping at Walmart and having to end a call with a family or friend because the premier is calling you to specifically, he said, request action on a government matter, which, again, is a government uh, related business. Uh, I expect it to come up again today. Uh, here's, here's the uh, grand irony. Last week, the premier was asked about the use of his cell phone. And Greg, as he stood up in the legislature to speak, all of a sudden, the entire legislature heard a buzzing sound, right? That distinct buzzing of a phone call. It was the premier's phone. It was buzzing. It was on his desk. And he picked it up and he said, you know, I don't know how to turn this thing off. And he gave it to another cabinet <laughs> minister. <laughs> to, 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 to go and handle. So, I mean, he does get a lot of phone calls. We don't want to know if it's a family member or a friend, but if it is a developer, I think that the public deserves to have some kind of an insight mm. into who the premier might be communicating. And if those communications lead to government decisions. It opens this door a little wider, Colin. Thanks so much for this. And we'll be watching for your report on Global News at 530 and 6 tonight. Thanks for the time as always on our show. Thank you for having me. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We saw this um, Reddit thread. You and I, uh, clearly, we're here, so we're not in school anymore. But I, but I never, ever have read a story quite like this. Someone posted on a Reddit thread about international students in Kitchener. And here's the thing. Right away, I think we're actually having better conversations when we go, you know, those international students. Because right now, Sheba, we feel... I feel aching pain for them that this incredibly important time of their life, someone either sold them down the wrong river or scammed them or something and told them school in Canada would be this, and it's not. And this is at Conestoga College in Kitchener. I'll read the thread as quick as I can. Um, But here's what someone writes. I think at this point we can admit this international student situation is getting out of hand. The region's been completely flooded. Nobody can get a job or find any decent housing. This isn't benefiting Canadians or international students. We're all suffering because of Conestoga's diploma mill. I work at a restaurant and I get at least 10 resumes from international students every shift. And that's not even counting the online applications. It's completely out of hand. This is also not diversity when they are all from the same country. They're being lied to and deceived. They come here and can't find housing or employment while also straining the system for those who are already here. Who has power over this situation? What can we do here? Protest, write the MP. What's the best of course of action here? Because this is seriously not okay anymore. And just to let the audience know, Conestoga's international enrollment, 12,808 students this year in 2014-15 it was 763. It was under 800. Wow. It's almost 13,000. And they're grabbing probably 10, 12 grand tuition for, for a community college because that would be the international. I mean, for universities, you're charging 35 grand for international students. It's just 
gross yeah. that this is happening. Oh, I know. I know it is. I, and, and the obstacles that they're coming across when they come to this country to get a Canadian education. And most of them do go back with that Canadian education. It's very valuable in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more than, this is as a stat of 2022, there are more than 40,000 international students were in Ontario at that time. It's all, also the most popular choice for international students to come to Ontario specifically. Uh, we house about 40, well, we try to house about 43% of international students across the country. And it's a st- sticky situation for them. I I feel for them. I really do. I, I do. I personally know a couple of international students who have come here from India in the hopes of getting an incredible education. And it's it, they're under a lot of stress. I can imagine. And so you think more, more do more go back with the degree and the degree if it's from Lambton College or Conestoga, it's really valuable to, if, to if get into a trade Canada. or to get right. If it's from Canada. Huh? Yeah. Like a, can, a Canadian education, we know that it's a fantastic education globally. Yeah, it is. But going back to, in this case, India with a Canadian education, it's very valuable. Like some of them haven't shot through the roof. Like Humber College had three thousand one hundred sixty-one international students in two thousand fourteen fifteen. Uh, two years ago, they had fifty-eight seventy-five. But I look at some some place like uh, Mohawk College in Hamilton; they've doubled. They've doubled and they've gone from 1,000 to 2,300. And there's some of these northern schools that Sioux College, Sault Ste. Marie, had they had 51. Why would you come from another country to Ontario and go, you know where, you know where I'm going to set up shop? Sault Ste. Marie for school. But there's 2,100 there this year. And there were 50 seven years ago. So that's a 3,990% increase. And as the, again, as the writer on that Reddit thread writes, there's no jobs and there's nowhere to live. They, they might be able to take you for your class. You can't live and your anywhere. Money. And take your money. They're happy to do that. Uh, honestly, honestly, some level of government needs to step in. Sometimes we take a story and we say, this is all anybody should be talking about. In a way, this is. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Vinnie Joseph came to Canada as an international student in 2008 and is the co-founder and director of the International Student Services Organization, a nonprofit in Ottawa. Vinnie, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Where do we go with this? Um, am I am I lining up the, the pins properly that this is a massive, massive concern and it's only gotten worse year after year, especially post-pandemic? Yes, uh, the significant increase in the foreign students is potentially damaging the reputation of our international student program since the experiences of foreign and for the matter of domestic students in Canada are deteriorating. The foreign students have a track record of contributing and making good immigrants, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but they are not to blame for the current housing crisis or um, we need to understand that we are at, uh, they are at the risk of exploitation. The current policies may be misleading them to believe that they will have a path to permanent residence. You know, and um, so are, uh, let me ask: Are we selling something that's a vehicle for hope, and instead we're exploiting these kids who are paying, like I said, twenty-two thousand dollars? They have nowhere to work and nowhere to live when they get here. Yes. Um, yeah. The, there should be a legislation to curtail, um, you know, um, this um, this uh, selling of hope. I mean, they should be aware. Uh, their mental health should be taken care. Um, if uh, we charge the international students uh, for, um, you know, uh, um, a whopping amount of money, uh, then we should be also invest into their um, their well-being. Benny Joseph's our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. 
are so I'll ask are they getting sold something when they come from another country or or is it simply the promise of a new land is there if you and I were going to pack up today and go to Tokyo next year and we were both 20 years old obviously we'd have to have a sense of the surroundings what things would cost whether we could work like we do a lot of research is is this a combination of some kids are just sold all the wrong information and some kids aren't prepared for what they get when they get here that is that is exactly what is happening there are um, there are uh, agencies that um, uh, and the middle people recruiting foreign students you know and uh, um, colleges and uh, institutions here are using them and those agencies and uh, the middle people are not uh, uh, telling the truth to the international students and so there should be a legislation to curtail all these agencies and middle people if they are uh, promising them, I mean, if they are, uh, uh, what we can see is that a percentage mm-hmm. of the commission given to the these agencies can be used for the well-being of the international students. What would you tell the president of one of these colleges? I understand they have a business to run. Can't be an easy job in this day and age. But when when some when I see Seneca has thirteen thousand international students than they had three thousand eight years ago, or Conestoga and Kitchener, what I referenced, what would you say to them in a conversation? Um, there should be a clear communication um, uh, regarding uh, this. Uh, what is offered in the offered in the schools? Whether there is um, housing is available, and there should be a legislation that uh, you know. I mean. Uh, or uh, there should be an availability that a, um, a room with a washroom is available for each uh, international student if they mm. uh, in that uh, city. If that is not available, we cannot bring the international students um, uh, to Canada. Uh, we, yeah. we cannot have 15 students in one house. Uh, we cannot have international students uh, can work outside. Uh, I mean, uh, there was a promise that they can, I mean, there was a legislation that uh, they can work 40 hours, but if they cannot work even That's right. uh, uh, availability, even if uh, it is not available for Canadians and permanent residents, uh, it, it, it is not available for international students also. Benny Josephs, the co-founder and director of the International Student Services Organization. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Anthony Fury, it's great to have you on. Great to be here, Greg. I know um, running for mayor, you had a lot of, lot of thoughts about what an Olivia Chow three years as mayor of the city of Toronto would look like. She's had 100 days. She was on our show on Friday in advance of the meeting with Christian Freeland. She was on with Alex Pearson's show yesterday. What do you see after 100 days? Give me sort of the good, the bad, the indifferent from your perspective. Yeah, well, 100 days is an important signal, Greg. Some people make campaign promises based on I'm going to get this or that ball rolling and started in the first 100 days. I did. I said I was going to do the budgetary review uh, within 100 days, work with my team. With Mayor Chow, what you'd want to see is an indication that she's she's making progress on her major files. And so far, I don't think we've really seen much of that. We did see that she secured funding for the amount of uh, capacity in our shelter system, which is actually taken up by refugees. Uh, the shelter system should be for more what we typically think of the homeless population. Instead, the Fed's border issues have created uh, the refugee issue. She secured that funding, and I think that's great, and she gets the check marks for that. But when it comes to making progress on things like the budget, 
we're not hearing that, as she told Alex the other day. And as mm. Mayor Chow has said uh, throughout meetings she's had with other levels of government, I, I think she's come up empty-handed. And the one thing uh, that I think you really need to be doing as mayor, Greg, is working on the things that you have control of. So the mayor does not have control of how much money Premier Doug Ford or Prime Minister Justin Trudeau give to the city of Toronto, but you do have control of your own budget to a large degree and how you spend your money. And we have not yet seen any commitment to do any sort of review, uh, an attempt to find any efficiencies. There just hasn't been, been any action on that front. So I think that's probably frustrating to a lot of residents and taxpayers who are already facing an affordability crisis and going, wait, hold on a second. Just how much are you going to raise taxes by then? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because and I if you if someone listened to the show nonstop and God bless you, if you do, you've heard me mention this almost every day, Anthony, the conversations I was having, even in the last few months of of John Tory being mayor were, were simply this. And they were coming from city councilors, councilors from the left, center and right were, were telling me privately the taps are off until we prove we've looked at inefficiencies until we've proved we can sort out our own house. We can't just go to other levels of government and ask for a blank check. And they know that they know we're not looking hard enough for, for where we can save our own money. No, absolutely. And the review that I was going to do, you go back to basics, you, you do zero based budgeting. What maybe you'd find the billion dollars. I was aspiring to find every cent I could, but whatever it is, you find what you can first before you go to other people and ask for money from other levels of government because mm-hmm. there's only one taxpayer or you go back and raise your own taxes. So that billion dollar gap, you've got to show that you're working really hard with your team and with mm-hmm. city staff to narrow that gap as much as possible before you even begin to think of asking people for more money. And it is uh, disappointing we haven't seen that exercise yet. Anthony Fury, 640 contributor, our guest. I'll play you a quick clip because I want the audience to hear it too in case they missed it yesterday. Here's Olivia Chow talking about how we are sort of that almost junior varsity level of government compared to the others. They didn't straight up say yes, but they what they're nodding, right? So, so we did explore that there are other alternatives, way uh, of funding the city. Right now what happens is the federal government transfer money to the provincial mm-hmm. government. Provincial government sometimes pocketed what, what they keep talking about. Hey, you know, why don't you go to talk to the province? They have $22 billion surplus. I said, excuse me, we have no power. That's just it, isn't it, Anthony? That Like, this would have been a battle for you to go up to Queen's Park and have these conversations with Doug Ford, go right to the House of Commons or visit with Christian Freeland. And and I don't know how forceful, like, there's a tone, right? When when people want something in any context, there's a tone that they have to strike. When you think about what you would have had to do, how do you reflect on it? Well, I think in the first 100 days, you generally have a lot of leeway. Uh, Mayor Chow, for her example, she has strong likability right now, I think, a lot of people giving her the benefit of the doubt. So now is the time that she could actually make some tough decisions. Uh, she can get people in a room working together, uh, like it's uh, w- whether it's working with other levels of government or finding efficiencies at City Hall. And, and I think she could get stuff done right now. So I hope this is not time that's being squandered. I hope we see that there's been things working from behind the scenes. But if the natural resting place is to just sit around and wait for other levels of government uh, to pony it up, I don't think there's going to be any progress made. And and that's unfortunate. And I should add that people do want to see progress on public safety issues right now. Mayor Chow did do some issues to address what's going on on transit. But ultimately, I think the reason we just haven't seen uh, more awful headlines the past few weeks is we've just been lucky that there hasn't been uh, horrible incidents. And I hope there you know, never are, of course. 
uh, moving forward. But I think that's all it is. Yeah, and we all we all worry when the weather turns and people sleeping on the street right now. You stay outside, you die. So guess where they're going? They're going into the subways. And and if we had a level of compassion about it, we'd stop it from happening. Give me forty five seconds on on. So for her first hundred days, it's often that benchmark for presidents, prime ministers. Why not a mayor? Are you disappointed? Are you mildly surprised? Is this about what you expected? Well, look, I think we don't have that many people tuning into politics right now, Greg, in terms of uh, it's back to school season, it's back to the office. So people are right now just waiting and watching to see what happens, whether it's, you know, federal, provincial, and in the mayor's office. I I think as time more ticks by, they're going to go, well, what is happening? Are we actually seeing any work being done at City Hall? And and it's a difficult level of of government to work out in terms of you don't have a national caucus, you don't have a cabinet and so on. So so it's on you and you got to go in and be prepared to do the hard work. Anthony, we'll talk real soon. Thanks for this this morning. Thank you, sir.